0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, chair of the Providence College Political Science Department and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guest. On April 9th, Benjamin Netanyahu won election as prime minister of Israel for the fifth time. He won despite allegations of corruption and a strong challenge from a party organized by a former Israeli general. To help us sort out the recent Israeli election and its implications for Israel's future, the Mideast, and American policy in the region, I have asked Dr. Ruth ben Associate Professor of Political Science at Providence College, to be our guest today. Professor ben is exceptionally well-qualified to help us understand the current political situation in Israel. Now a joint American-Israeli citizen, Ruth grew up in Israel, where she earned her undergraduate degree at the University of Haifa, before coming to the US to earn her doctorate at Columbia University in 2005. She has served on the faculty at Providence College since 2006, teaching courses here on international relations, Middle Eastern politics, and international political economy. Her scholarship focuses on international banking and political development. Her book, Regional Development Banks in Comparison, Banking Strategies Versus Development Goals, was published by the Cambridge University Press in 2016. In addition to her teaching and scholarship, Professor Benardsi is active in the Rhode Island community as a commentator on Israeli politics and as a member of the Rhode Island Steering Committee of J Street. advocacy group for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I also should add that the Benardzi family has been a prominent one in Israel since the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948 and before. Consequently, Ruth is personally acquainted with many of the major actors in Israeli politics. I cannot imagine anyone better situated to help us understand the recent Israeli elections than today's guest. Ruth, welcome and thanks so much for being with us today, and I'm looking forward to your insights on the recent election. Before we get into the analysis of that election, uh, maybe it would help our listeners if you would give us a a brief primer on uh, Israeli politics and government, particularly the complexities of electing delegates to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and the proportional representation system, and the many, many political parties that exist in Israel today. How was the prime minister chosen, and how is the government organized, Ruth?
1: Um, okay. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, and I'm happy to uh, try to make sense of some of the uh, recent events. So first of all, with the Knesset. The Knesset is the Israeli parliament. Uh, there are 120 seats uh, in the Knesset. Uh, there's only one parliamentary chamber in Israel. There's only one, there's no, there's only one house. So the, the Knesset is the only parliament. There's no two chambers. Uh, uh, as, uh, there's no House of Representatives and another chamber. That is the House of Representatives, the Knesset. Um, the members are elected in a parliamentary election of proportional representation in one region. So Israel is not divided into various regions. Uh, There's no um, states or sub-states within Israel. It is all one region. This type of election system, uh, parliamentary, election system that is also proportional representation usually lends itself for, as, for a multi-party system. And especially in a place like Israel, where there are many different minority groups and groups that uh, center around single issues, whether it's religious uh, or ethnic uh, or, po- or other political, it makes it more worthwhile for them to create their own political party and then sit in a coalition or in an opposition with other parties because their their voices uh, is usually more effective. They can get more of their uh, of their agenda across to uh, uh, for political uh, purposes if they form their own party. So there's a kind of a little bit of a um, Of a sweet spot, you don't wanna be a party that is too small, although sometimes parties that are just a couple members can be pivotal parties, can be extremely important. They can make or break a coalition and therefore they have more power uh, than than otherwise. So we've seen actually over the years, and especially even now in this election, various politicians who have splintered off one of the bigger parties and created their own small party because ha- they had been frustrated that their ideology or their le- the legislation that they want to try to put forth is not really getting any kind of attention or traction when they're part of a bigger uh, party. So, so,
0: so, so in Israel, uh, even if you're a very small party, you can get enough votes to get maybe one or two seats in the parliament and then become... A, a real actor, perhaps a, a member of a coalition with a larger party yeah. and and could be pivotal for determining yes, who's prime minister.
1: And I'll give you an example. So first of all the way that when Israelis vote they do not vote for a person. They don't vote for Benjamin Netanyahu. They vote for a, a political party. party. Right. So the political party decides it's Um, Ranking of the members of the party. Some political parties have primaries, and this is how they decide it, so members of the party can vote. Some don't. Like the religious parties, the rabbis decide what the ranking is. Before the elections, every party has to submit to the election commission a list of 122 members of that party. Um, Even though it's unrealistic that any party would ever get 122 Mm -hmm. members, they have to have that list. So what it means is that if there are many parties, for example, in the coalition deliberation right now, one of the parties that has only five seats has a lot of power because they can make or break the coalition. This is Lieberman's party, and he would likely get a very good position.
0: Yeah, this is perhaps something that really confuses Americans. Uh, After the election, the news reports here, for example, reported that uh, Netanyahu's party, the Likud, got 35 seats in the Knesset. And his major opposition— The Blue and White Party, led by Benny Gantz, also got 35 seats. But immediately, everybody said Netanyahu was now going to be prime minister. To many Americans, it looked like a tie. Both parties had 35 seats. How come Netanyahu gets to be prime minister?
1: Well, so it was actually far from a tie. What you look at is you look at blocks, at blocks of, of what are the likely parties that have agreements or will likely make agreements with a coalition party. So the way it works is that uh, right after the election, the president of Israel, which is a ceremonial role, um, is charged with, uh, with giving the right to form a coalition to one of the parties. It doesn't have to be the party that has the most votes. It's, and I'll tell you in a second when it didn't happen. So this is not the worst. This is not the fir, This is not the worst challenge Netanyahu has faced in recent years. Um, and uh, the president does it usually strategically because there's sixty days uh, to form a, a, a coalition. The president receives from the various smaller parties, from all the parties, recommendation of who they would like to be sitting within a government. And so this was clear that even though both Net- the Likud and Benny Gantz's party, the Blue and White Party, received 35 mandates, 65 mandates uh, or 65 seats of of those parties, of, of the Likud plus a lot of the smaller parties, were recommending Benjamin Netanyahu for, for, to form a coalition and become prime minister, whereas only 55, uh, and it's not clear even if that many were recommending Benny Gantz. So, so, it so in Gantz.
0: this election, it was, it was what happened here was that uh, even prior to the, the election, uh, Netanyahu had agreements with these other smaller parties that they would, in fact, recommend him so that everyone understood that if 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 uh, all those parties together got enough seats, mm-hmm. then Netanyahu would be prime minister, which is what happened, right?
1: Yes, although they don't even have to have formal agreements. In a lot of the cases, it's not formal agreements, uh, but it's kind of, this is the natural, um, let's look at the 55 that, that Gantz would have, for example. Those include the Arab parties. There's absolutely no way, and Netanyahu knows this, the Likud knows this, that any of the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties, religious parties, Um, uh, Zionist religious parties that are to the right of the Likud would ever recommend A, uh, whatever, recommend a candidate that might form a coalition with the Arab parties. Uh, There's also the more left wing uh, Israeli um, progressive Zionist party merits. There's also, they would also refuse to sit in a coalition with those. So so Netanyahu or the Likud doesn't even have to sign any kind of agreement with them because they're just guaranteed partners.
0: Okay, so I mean, it has to do with the the ideological distribution among. Some right. of these parties and their, their likely affiliation because of public policy or ideological. In yeah. the Israeli press, you read
1: a lot both before and after the elections about voting blocks and, and the electoral blocks that this election had right. created. And what by blocks, what they mean is uh, these are a certain number of seats that are just guaranteed to go to the right or guaranteed to go to the Likud, no matter what. They can despise each other, they can refuse to sign agreements. Right now, there's a big kind of rift and conflict and competition going on between Lieberman and Netanyahu, for example, but it is obvious that he will join a coalition because it is in his interest.
0: Yeah, but so, but but in order to be prime minister, you need to have 61 votes, yes. right? So yes. so uh, if Netanyahu has 65, that gives a lot of leverage to even a small party with only five or six seats exactly. because they could make or ba- break mm-hmm. Netanyahu. He could bring down the government. Right. Okay. So that right. really, right. You, you can see the incentive in yeah. this proportional representation system for people to form these small parties and give them right. considerable power. And
1: they can extort some good. You know, they oftentimes it has to do with what positions Lieberman, for example, wants to be minister of defense. Um, and he and he's head
0: of one of these right wing. Yes, he's at the parties. Russian
1: secular party. He also has an issue with the ultra orthodox. He would like to advance legislation that would. Um, that would make it mandatory, or to enforce mandatory military service for ultra Orthodox, uh, and that is that is a big problem within that right wing coalition.
0: Because Netanyahu also has support from the ultra Orthodox, and he parties. needs
1: them. They have sixteen seats; oh, they're okay. they're stronger than than than, uh, than Lieberman. So he is in a very tough place. This is no easy negotiation going on, and the losers are probably going to be his only Kud members because he's going to hand out. Um, ministerial seats to all these other smaller parties
0: right Uh, and is it the case that after this election Netanyahu's block or coalition is even further to the right than the previous government ideologically or is that too simplistic
1: um so you know I would say it is more apparent now to people who are viewing this from the outside that it's to the right uh, in my opinion, it has been as far to the right now for 20 years. Uh, we are just seeing this more. So it has been some of the some of the uh, of those voices that are now out in the open had always been there, but they were hiding or they were kind of behind the scenes. They were whispering in the ears of the other representatives. Now they're not afraid. They're emboldened. It's not that much different than what is going on in the United States where some of the currents and the trends had always been there. Uh, but now they just have a, they're louder, uh, is what I would say. But that trend of the entire Israeli electorate going to the right and therefore also representatives going to the right uh, has been there. One of the things that Netanyahu is trying to do even to to, to enlarge in his coalition and to have a more stable coalition, not to depend as much on some of these smaller parties, he's trying to entice some of the individual members of Gantz's political party to splinter off of that party and join a coalition. That also has been done before. And because Gansa's party was put together at the last minute, and it's kind of like a, um, a mishmash of various different people who don't necessarily share an ideology or a vision, it is very possible that at least a few of them could say, well, you know, we identify with some of these Uh, uh, agendas that the Likud or this coalition is forming, and therefore we would, we feel like we're going to be more effective being part of the coalition.
0: So maybe this is a good time for you to give us some background on on Netanyahu and his role in Israeli politics. He's been a major figure now for, uh, what, 20 years, almost 25 years, uh, and he's been prime minister for a a good period of time. Um, uh, Exactly who is Netanyahu and how has his politics evolved, and the politics of his of his coalition uh, over time? What can you tell us about that?
1: So Netanyahu became prime minister for the first time in 1996, uh, and that was the first time. And then the and after this, the law was changed, where Israel actually had a um, a different type of electoral system. It experimented with a different type of electoral system for two election cycles, where a prime minister was voted on directly. So the person got a vote, uh, and there was a separate vote for a party. Uh, So this was kind of closer to the American presidential system, or the type. And there was this was because up until then uh, there was concern that the parliamentary party system uh, that is in place and the electoral uh, system that is in place in Israel had um, kind of created these fertile grounds for many little parties and that no coalition was stable. In fact, I think only one, if at all, government or coalition in Israel's history had actually lasted its full term. These elections now also were called early. So it is very typical that that a coalition or a government doesn't actually serve. It's, for, it's full four terms, and we've had votes of no confidence. So it's not as bad as Italy, uh, but it's bad enough that uh, there, there had been attempts to, um, to change the electoral system. So he's he was elected for the first time in 1996 as, as the leader of the Likud. Uh, and then he had a few, and so since 1996, he has been at the center of the political arena in Israel. There were a couple of gaps in between, between 1996 and now, where he was not prime minister, but he was leader of the opposition, and he was extremely vocal, and he remained popular. He um, developed and nurtured a very strong base of supporters who are loyal to him even more than they are to the Likud. And over the years, he created the kind of the Likud in his image. Uh, And it's now, for those very loyal Likud voters, it's very difficult to separate the party From the person, which is one of the reasons why sometimes when commentators who are critical of him or critical of his own kind of personal issues uh, are saying, well, the Likud is still, it's a party. Now we do vote for a party. You're not actually voting for Benjamin Netanyahu when you go to vote uh, in the elections, you're voting for the Likud. You can still vote for the Likud even if Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer there. Even if he is removed, there could be a different leader. But a lot of the voters for the Likud um, really identify with with him. What he was able to do is um, kind of capitalize on what he was seeing that some of the— Uh, authoritarian regimes some of what we or we see countries that are sliding away from democracies during this transition time in the 1990s after the Cold War um, forming new governments the ones that we're seeing in in Central Europe for example uh, he was able to capitalize on those types of politics where he realizes that fear can generate this type of support that he needs uh, and creating this a personality cult and an identification with a political party that would ensure his political or his political majority. He's not a very ideological person. He was not necessarily a right-wing ideologue before that. I mean, he does come from a right-wing ideological family. Uh, there is a history there that would help explain some so, of his
0: right-wing... So in, in, in Israel, when we talk about a right wing or a conservative, ideologue. what is what does that mean in the Israeli context? I in, mean, the Israeli, so I mean, in the United the, States, we think yeah. uh, a, a right wing or conservative would be someone who wants low taxes or small government, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is it like that in Israel or? Or, or what else do we need to understand to understand that?
1: So actually, Netanyahu Americanized Israeli politics. He made it like that in Israel. So he had spent, he actually was an American citizen earlier. He spent many years, his formative years, in the United States. His father was ostracized from Israeli academia, was very frustrated, he's a historian. Um, of 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 Jewish of Jewish history, uh, and he spent many years in the United States. And his father kind of preached to his children how terrible the Israeli elites are. And at that time, the elites were the elites that were associated with the Labor Party uh, or with the left. And so this is what Netanyahu grew on. Um, his star started to shine in Israeli politics when he was appointed. Uh, the uh, representative, Israeli representative to the United Nations and he speaks English very well and he's, he can present himself very well, he's very well spoken, he's a good politician and he happened to be the Israeli representative to the United Nations during the Gulf War, during those years in the 1990s where there was a lot of attention, there's 24 hour news cable already, so he got a lot of coverage and he got a lot of traction and Uh, foreigners loved him so he was a good he created this image for Israel uh, that that Israelis liked to present uh, to the outside world he used that when he went back to Israel and he presented himself as a candidate for leadership in the Likud saying essentially saying you know I am Uh, the best person to be leading the country because I have forged all these relations across the world and we need that support so that was something that he definitely used so in terms of right wing he brought that right wing low taxes small government um, he brought that to Israel. That was not a traditional Israeli. Israel was kind of formed more as a, as a social democracy, uh, with a kibbutz movement. That that was, you know, people uh, were very much concerned with a social contract that includes, and still to a certain extent includes, universal health care uh, and a very strong public education system and 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 higher taxation. So he changed that. Uh, But that overlaps, and over the years it overlapped, became more overlapping with what traditionally has been right-wing in Israel, which is right-wing when it comes to the Israeli-Arab conflict. So how do we approach the Israeli-Arab conflict or a peace process? And especially when discussing the occupied territories, the territories Israel occupied in 1967. So today's kind of the modern right-left right-left divide in Israel usually has to do with that. And it kind of started only in 1967 when the conversation about how to handle those territories that were occupied and how to handle the Palestinians has become a major um, political debate.
0: Of course, and that's been at the center of Israeli politics since the late 60s. Yeah. Give us a little background on sort of Israeli history. Some of our listeners may not be up to date on, and, and acquainted with with how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict developed. Uh, you mentioned 1967, the war that occurred then, that was critical. Uh, so how, how did the, that war come about and, and what has been its consequences to make this Israeli-Palestinian conflict so central to the 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 Middle East and Israel?
1: Um, So actually we'll backtrack to 1948 when Israel was created already again this there were natives to the land there was Palestine it was mandatory Palestine under the British mandate in 1948 um, the the British had promised the land to to divide the land to and, and have two states a Jewish state and an Arab state, uh, as soon as the British left uh, in 1947, uh, when the Arabs actually rejected the partition plan because they saw it as this is land that was ours and all of a sudden it's being taken away from us, uh, even if it's a smaller portion, they didn't think that this was viable. Uh, the war the war that Israel calls the War of Independence and the Palestinians called the Nakba, or the disaster, um, started immediately. And at that war, Israel, Conquered, uh, or the the it, at that point it wasn't Israel yet, but the Jewish establishment in in Palestine conquered more land than the parti- the UN partition plan allotted to it. So already the borders of one thousand, nine hundred and forty-eight, what Israel became when it first declared itself independent, were wider than what the United Nations initially approved. Uh, and those are usually, those are recognized by the international community and by the UN after the armistice uh, was signed at the end of the war as Israel's official borders. So when people say pre-1967 borders, those are the borders they're talking about, 1948. What, the reason why it's important to mention is that during that war already there was the, the first wave of Palestinian refugees, was created. So Palestinians had to flee their land during that war. Some of them, and they moved to different places. Some of them are now in refugee camps, also under Israeli control, in the West Bank, which Israel conquered from Jordan in 1967. So until 1967, these Palestinians were in Jordan, or if they were in Gaza, they were in Egypt, because Gaza was under Egypt's control. And when Israel conquered those lands in the War of 1967, that Israel calls the Six-Day War, the Arabs call it the June War, um, the uh, those territories already included refugees from 1948. Uh, And that's when you hear about refugee camps in the West Bank and refugee camps in Gaza, those are 1948 refugees. Those are Palestinians who used to live within what is now Israel. For example, Tel Aviv University sits on an Arab village. It used to be an Arab village, right, where Tel Aviv University is. Um, many parts of central Israel, uh, there were Arab villages, and they fled during the 1948 war, and they were never uh, never able to return.
0: Yeah, so you, you can see that the grievance on the part of many Palestinians is very profound, and it's really rooted uh, in events of v- now very long time ago, 70 right. years, right. Of of uh, concern and and a feeling of having been wronged and, and the like, so right. that certainly plays into the the, the depth and the and the and the uh, how 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 difficult this conflict is, right?
1: Exactly. Yes. And then when when 1967 war uh, ended with Israel holding on to the territories of the West Bank uh, and Gaza. Uh, there was a debate and there were voices within Israel that said this is not right, we have to let go of these territories. I'm, but probably most of our listeners don't know that there was also a war in 1956 where Israel essentially conquered the entire Sinai, went all the way to the Suez Canal. At that point the US government forced Israel to withdraw back to its borders. This is the first instance where Israel was not, um, was not mandated by the international community and especially by the United States to withdraw. Uh, so uh, so there was this debate, what do we do with these territories? Do we hold on to them? There are people living on these territories, Palestinians. Um, do we just hold on to them and, and use them as a bargaining chip for later on? Uh, and, of course, right away, uh, immediately, basically after 1967, there were um, right-wing, especially religious Zionists, who saw this land as part of the old Judea, as part of the Jewish kingdom from biblical times, and their position on it was this is meant to be. This is our land. We conquered it uh, in a war. Their position was that Israel did not start the war. This is also a controversial topic because Israel was involved in skirmishes before the war. It's not clear that Israel wasn't part of um, a process that instigated the war. It's so so it's, it's not as simple as Israel was attacked and it miraculously won and conquered territory and now these are the spoils of war and we get to keep them. Uh, the problem is that now there are almost 4 million people living, Palestinians, living in Gaza and the West Bank uh, without any citizenship. They are under occupation, they are under military rule since 1967. And the question of how to handle those territories and what to do, both with the territory and with the people who live on the territory, is what creates the left-right divide since 1967. Right, and so,
0: and so already by, by the 1970s, you had a faction within Israel saying, we basically should keep these lands forever. This is part of—we uh, we, we now should, uh, we should in fact, uh, annex them, and they should be part of Israel, and and that uh, but we also hear a lot of talk about the, the one-state and the two-state solution. Can you kind of sort that out? What are, what are the different stances on the future of Israel? And yeah. and uh, it seems that uh, in the 1980s and 90s, the assumption was there would have to be some kind of a two-state solution with a Palestinian state and, and an Israeli, uh, predominantly Jewish state. Um, but since then, there have been a lot of Israeli settlements on the West Bank, and there seem to be more and more politicians in Israel who are advocating something other than that two-state solution.
1: Right. So the settlement started in the late 60s and early 70s, and actually with the support and even encouragement at times of the Labor Party government-led government. Led government. Oh. So uh, so until 1977, Israel's government was kind of hegemonically controlled by the Labor Party. So between 1967 and 1977, when some of the most extreme settlements that are deep in Judea, uh, in the West Bank, were created was under Labor Party leadership. Uh, so we have to make that clear, and the settlers know this. Uh, there was a debate on whether to allow Jews to settle in those lands, and the Labor Party allowed that. There were voices within the left and the Labor Party and some um, kind of thought leaders within Israel who warned, who wrote about this, who warned, who said, this is going to be the end of the country. This will corrupt the entire Zionist or Jewish uh, a national dream. We cannot hold to these territories. But they were quickly crushed. It seemed like uh, the Arab countries were devastated after the war. Uh, the voices within those uh, religious Zionist um, factions within Israel uh, were, they, they saw themselves as as pioneers. They saw themselves, they were kind of like the hippie, 1960s, we're going to go settle on these hilltops and we're going to create, this is our biblical land. And they, so these are when, this is when these settlements started. So when we're talking about one state and two states, um, by the 80s and 90s, some people were already cynical about that too. They said, you know, well, this, this is just lip service. This is all a pretend game for the rest of the world to think that it is possible to create two states because at the same time that negotiations were happening, at the same time that all the different processes were happening, the settlements were expanding and growing, uh, and more and more land was grabbed and taken away uh, from its Palestinian owners. So uh, incrementally over the years between 1967 and today, uh, just the landscape, the geography made it more and more impossible to separate the people uh, and to create what we talk about as two states, which is the idea that within the 1967 borders or the borders where the 1948 war ended, that will be Israel, a Jewish state, and the Occupied Territories, what is called today the Occupied Territories, the West Bank and Gaza, will form together a Palestinian state. This is logistically complicated because they are not territorially continuous. So Gaza and the West Bank, in order to move between them, you have to go through a road that goes through Israel, so that's one of the logistical issues. But these are the same people, so you can live in Gaza and your family and cousins are in the West Bank, but you cannot easily get to see them. Yeah,
0: you know, I, I wasn't aware of this history that the Labor Party uh, promoted settlements. I had always associated the settlements with the, the more religiously motivated uh, Israelis who who I never thought were affiliated with the Labor Party. So, But, but what you're suggesting here is that uh, this policy of uh, Jewish settlement uh, is deeply rooted and may be uh, more of a, a strategic uh, a, a str- str- strategic uh, project that's been in place since the end of the sixty seven war, and that uh, perhaps many Israeli elites never have, Contemplated a Palestinian state being created?
1: Yeah, it's a comp, it's again, it's a complicated issue and it's hard to get into people's minds. Um, you know, if we see polling, for example, of Israelis, it's always very interesting to see that even in the 1990s, during when the Oslo Accords and different peace processes during Clinton's uh, presidency uh, were yeah, those signed.
0: Were, those are two times when. At least in the United States, when Clinton was meeting with Israeli leaders, it was all two-state solution, two-state solution. Yeah. we're going to have a Palestinian state and a and, right. an, and an Israeli primarily Jewish state, and yeah, and everything's going to be happy and
1: right and peaceful. And e- yes, and even the Oslo Accords were actually not nearly enough. But that was a situation where Rabin the Israeli. Uh, prime minister at the time from the Labor Party, who had been uh, who, who had been a general, who had been chief of staff, had been minister of security, had been for a very short time in the 1970s prime minister even, um, he uh, kind of made a 180-degree turn, and he went and he shook hands with Arafat. This is the first time that Israel uh, let Arafat go of the head of the, uh, the, head of the Palestinian Liberation right. Organization, the PLO, right. who was ostracized. So it had been until then, until 1993, illegal for any Israeli to meet with a member of the PLO. You would go to jail if you met with a member of the PLO. So these talks were held in secret, and then it legitimized it, and Arafat, the leader of the PLO, was permitted to go back uh, to uh, to the West Bank and to Gaza. Uh, and many of those dissidents and, and were able to, the leadership of the PLO, were able to go back. That kind of little red light for the religious right. And that wasn't even very much, because the Oslo Accords was not a peace process. It was not a peace plan. It was, it was planned as something that would be very incremental, and it would essentially leave many of those settlements in place. It was really not clear what the end game was going to be, which is why it was doomed to fail to begin with. But it gave a lot of hope to people because there was a lot of talk about two states without actually realistically looking at what is or isn't possible. But it scared the right wing and the religious settlers enough to assassinate Rabin. Um, and, so, and, to, and to kill that possibility, even. So as, as, as far as I'm concerned, I would say that in 1995, when Rabin was assassinated by a religious right-wing zealot who was following um, a decree by, by right-wing rabbis uh, in the West Bank who called Rabin a traitor, um, uh, you know, and he's, still, he's in jail, and he, he still has never um, expressed any remorse for what he did. Uh, that is when the two-state solution was killed. So I would say that since 1995, any discussion or conversation about a two-state um, serves the, um, you know, kind of the happy feelings of those who are still hopeful and think that there could be a Jewish democracy and also a Palestinian state, uh, without being very realistic about what is actually going on there. And Israel played right into that when you poll Israelis over the years, they say, yes, we want peace with the Palestinians, yes, we support a Palestinian state, but no, we don't want to move Jews away from the West Bank. Um, and so it's very it's kind of a schizophrenic understanding without real offering a real solu- solution.
0: And, and Netanyahu's uh, government, particularly in the last few uh, his last few terms as prime minister uh, has, has not at all promoted a, a Palestinian state. He's promoted policies that encourage settlements and, and move further away from even the possibility of that. Is that correct? If
1: well, in 2009, he gave a speech in Bar-Ilan University. 2009, he got elected. Um, that's actually when the Likud one was not the biggest party. C.P. Livni's party, or Kadima, which kind of factioned off, was kind of centrist, part labor, part Likud. Um, got 28 seats or 28 um, mandates in the election, and the Likud with Bibi as its leader got 27, and yet Bibi got to form a coalition. So I would say that 2009 was really the biggest challenge. This election were an easy, election for, for Netanyahu. It was clear to him, and it was clear to everybody who was really observing it, that he is going to continue to be prime minister after this election, even if Gantz managed to get more seats in the election, just because of the right-wing faction. So in 2009, he gave a speech in Bar-Ilan University, where he talked about two states and the two-state solution. It made the Americans very happy. And at that time, with Obama as president, with Bush leaving, with like he is very good at reading the political um, wins uh, in uh, in Israel's biggest sponsor, which is the United States. So he's he, he knows how to sweet talk to American presidents. Although he didn't get much of the time of day from Obama, he was trying to navigate that. And he knows that he's navigating between his own domestic constituencies and what the Americans are more and more seeing is a worrisome trend towards the right. Um, his kind of biggest opportunity his um, w- came to him when Trump was elected, because, and this is why we're seeing in the last couple of years, all of these uh, right-wing, very extreme right-wing parties and right-wing, um, political positions, very extreme political positions that I would argue always existed, but are now surfacing and are out in the open because they feel they can do that uh, with Trump's administration. So with this American administration, they're not getting the pushback. They're not being, Trump. Trump's administration has not uttered the word two-state. They have completely left this possibility of two-state solution, which Israeli politicians behind the scenes have been pushing for for a very long time.
0: Yeah. And Trump and Netanyahu seem to be very close. Uh, Trump uh, actually sort of did some things to encourage his election, the uh, recognition of uh, the Golan Heights, uh, yeah, uh, the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, all that is sort of supporting Netanyahu.
1: Um, and Netanyahu is supporting Trump. So when I'm saying right. that Netanyahu is very good about reading American politicians, he lived in the United States. He's really kind of half-American. Um, when he declares that he's going to put to a vote in the Knesset naming the new town that is now being built in the Golan Heights after Trump, he knows exactly what he's right. doing. Uh, that is political capital for him. He right. knows how to how to bend Trump's arm and what to ma- how to make him happy.
0: And, and he knows Trump likes to put his name on things. Yes. So—, uh, so well, so what about this Kushner plan? Then we we hear about supposedly Jared Kushner is going to fly in and resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, is there anything to that? Is there? Do, do you have any uh, guesses to what might be uh, the Trump approach to the conflict, or is this just uh, uh, noth- silliness, nothing of, of substance?
1: So. Um Kushner has not shared his plan with me, so I have no idea what is in his plan. Um, so that I will, I will start with that. Uh, I can only speculate some of the rumors that is that have been flowing on and out there, and also some of the kind of the evidence that we've seen of what they're planting, the little seeds that they're planting. My hunch is that the Kushner plan is really the Netanyahu plan, uh, and that. Uh, and and i also have to say that this is a first for for an american administration if it really ends up happening that an american administration actually um in black and white in writing presents a plan of what the American administration thinks should be the end solution of this conflict and how the territory should be divided.
0: to now, the Americans have said this has to be a negotiation between exactly. the Palestinians and the Israelis? And
1: they have been pushed to do that. So I can tell you that J Street, for example, in the United States, had tried to push the Obama administration to do this, tried to push the Obama administration to present their own plan before Obama's term ended Mm -hmm. second term ended to have a certain plan just even to have it so it's out there so there is an american position that is published the Obama administration was resistant to it because they kept saying this exact same thing. This needs to be negotiated between the sides. We don't want to impose our position on the Palestinians, Israelis, and potential other partners. So, so you're saying
0: that the Kushner plan may very well be Netanyahu's plan, but presented by the Americans as the American plan. Yes. And and that may give it some legitimacy. And-
1: yes, and, and now here are the signs that we're seeing. For example, when Trump declared um, soon after he became president, when he declared that the United States is now recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he also said at the same time that now that's off the table, Is Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, therefore we're not negotiating about that anymore. So, um, so we're seeing some signs of the kinds of things that might end up appearing in this plan uh, where the Trump administration or Kushner is assuming that those things that they took off the table, whether it's the Golan Heights or Jerusalem, are not even going to be—that's it. That's not up for negotiation anymore. So we're not fighting over Jerusalem because we, the Americans, already made a decision about it. So, so is
0: Netanyahu and, and Trump, through the possible future Kushner plan, have they, like, pushed the idea of a Palestinian state completely off the table? Or or would they have some version of that?
1: I think it is very unlikely that any plan that is presented by the Trump administration with the stamp of approval, I don't think they would ever—they would not present a plan. They they are saying that the plan includes— Tough decisions and concessions on both sides. But the reality is going to be that it includes huge sacrifices on the Palestinian part and probably uh, kind of make believe sacrifices on the Israeli part. So it, 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 it's very likely that you will see the Israeli government huffing and puffing and complaining that this is a huge sacrifice uh, because they're kind of this is their negotiation strategy. Uh, they want to move as far to the right so then that when they negotiate, they just move a little bit less to the right uh, for an end game. Uh, It's very unlikely that the plan would actually include a real, independent, viable Palestinian state in the way that we think of a modern state today. It's very, it it is, uh, I think the the possibility What's more possible is that it would be a demilitarized zone. Uh, It would be more of an autonomous region. Netanyahu has been talking about this since the 1980s. That had been always his vision that the Palestinians would have autonomy over their own lives, but not over a territory. Um, Some people on the left call it the. The, the theory of the floating people, um, yeah. where where they can decide for themselves um, when to wake up in the morning and what to eat and, and maybe even what school to go to, but that they have very few other powers.
0: Right. So, uh, let, let, let's broaden the, the vision here a little bit. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but uh, talk a little bit about uh, foreign policy and, and uh, the implications of the election. It seems that in recent years, uh, Netanyahu has um, uh, forged a closer relationship with some of the other Arab states like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, who formerly had been very hostile uh, to Israel. Uh, and and a lot of this has to do with uh, uh, confrontation with Iran, uh, and sort of an uh, agreement among those people that there's a need to to counter Iran. Uh, what are the implications of this, this election for, for those developments and the Israeli uh, policies towards Iran?
1: Um, so Netanyahu has pushed for an American intervention in Iran uh, since the late 1990s, uh, this, or early 2000s, or after the Iraq War. There's been talk about it since the 1990s about Iran. But then there was the Iraq War that Israel also pushed for. So um, one of America's biggest supporter in the 2003 invasion of Iraq was Israel, Um, more than 90% support in Israel, not in other European allies, Western allies. But Israel very much supported the Bush administration's uh, war in Iraq. So once that war is over, Uh, Israel is looking for another formidable enemy. So we talked about all these different factions and the problem of creating coalitions and everybody has demands. Uh, One of the best domestic politics strategy is to make sure you have a really formidable enemy on the outside. Uh, And Israel is kind of running out of enemies. So Iraq had been invaded. The Palestinians are not an existential threat. Uh, Egypt is not fighting a war with Israel. In fact, Egypt now with a Sisi and authoritarian leader, Israel has a a pretty good relationship. And it did also with Mubarak before. Uh, Israel was more concerned about the Muslim Brotherhood. So if if Trump passes any kind of legislation uh, or puts the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, you can bet uh, that that, uh, Israel or Netanyahu had been whispering in his ear. Um, So that's an Israeli interest. Lebanon is is kind of mired in its own swamp. Uh, Syria is in a civil war. So so really, this is this is a very important strategy. Now, Iran obviously looks at Israel's nuclear weapons, looks at Israel's power, looks at American intervention. Iran is very worried about it. Iran is also a competitor to Saudi Arabia. So this is where. Um, Israel finds shared interest with Saudi Arabia, and it makes really good sense, and it's great for the United States because the United States has these shared interests with Saudi Arabia too. United States has absolutely nothing in common with Saudi Arabia except for oil and money. Um, Saudi Arabia is a very extreme religious regime, more than Iran. Uh, actually. There's a lot of American hatred in Saudi Arabia. Uh, There's a lot of Islamophobia in the United States, as we know, and yet the United States maintains this really close relationship with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is actually the country that we could argue was the most kind of culprit or responsible for the 9-11
0: attack. So given these developments, Ruth, uh, and now that Netanyahu is is getting another mandate uh, as prime minister, uh, do you think there's a real chance for— military conflict with Iran? Uh.
1: I think that the that Israel would not start— so Iran is, is a formidable enemy. Iran is a very big country. It's much more difficult to fight a war with Iran than it is with Iraq. Um, Iran's uh, nuclear program is very well hidden and divided, uh, and it's not right now a military program. And also Western European countries and Russia are still part of the agreement with Iran, so Netanyahu is now also navigating Putin, uh, not just Trump, because Putin does not want necessarily a war with Iran, even though Putin has no extra love for the Iranian leadership. Um, I think that um, it's tricky. I think that Netanyahu would certainly push for it. The Israelis probably would not do it. Al- go along and 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 go into any military adventure adventure in Iran without U.S. support or at least a U.S. nod of the head or a wink or some sort of a green light. I am not sure that Trump would be able to do that given what I'm hearing. Um, what my understanding is that the uh, military echelons in the United States are very much opposed to any sort of uh, military um, uh, action in in Iran. So it might be hard for the administration, and especially if the administration is, is going to be involved in various congressional oversight um, investigations, it would be very hard for it to pass that, any kind of legislation. My understanding is that right now the American army is not mobilized in any sort of way to be ready. For that type of military action, so, so I'm
0: hopeful. So the, the Pentagon wing of the deep state might might in fact might, might be the save restraining us. <laughs> factor here. <laughs> might save uh, the us Trump from war. administration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay. Well, very quick. A couple of other uh, really quick things. Uh, uh, this corruption in, uh, indictment uh, is Netanyahu going to be indicted for corruption? Is that going to happen, or is now that he's reelected as prime minister, is he protected? Do you think?
1: He's not protected by law right now i mean the answer to that is i don't know one of his biggest negotiating chips in creating a coalition or the negotiating chips of his coalition partners is we will sit with you we will agree to certain things um uh you have to give us all these um, positions that we're asking for and then we will vote for what they call the french law so as long as you are, a sitting prime minister cannot be indicted in France, or sitting president. Um, and so they want to pass this legislation. Uh, it also protects members of Knesset. It wouldn't protect just the prime minister. They want to try to make it seem as if it's not just designed for him. There's a good chance that that's going to come up for a vote, and then that he's going to try to remain prime minister for as long as possible. There it are no
0: terms. 65 votes, it probably won't pass.
1: It, will, it, will, it could pass, and that might be a coalition condition for any party to join the coalition. Um, and there are no term limits in Israel. So technically, he could be prime minister for the next 20, 30 years. Um, so, so I don't know. I think—and he, his narrative is um, everybody knew what was going on with the corruption allegations. It is all just a witch hunt. It is all fake news. We had elections. The people voted for me. We should drop this. That is his narrative. Sounds familiar, but that's his narrative.
0: So we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens. Yes. Okay, Ruth, this has been very interesting. There's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, but just to wind things up, uh, when you think of Israel's future, uh, what is your biggest fear and what is your biggest hope?
1: Um, my biggest fear is that Israel would use its nuclear capabilities. My biggest hope is that – and. Israel would evolve, as other nation states have evolved, from a uh, the Jewish democracy or the the kind of the pretense of the Jewish democracy that it was created under in 1948 and it would evolve to something else, that Israel would kind of go through maybe a similar transition that the United States went to, through in the Civil War that other countries went through, where kind of there's a big constitutional change. Uh, And in this case, my hope would be that Israel would evolve into a state that is a civic state, that is where democracy comes first and Jewish comes second, where religion can be separated from uh, state apparatus and state institutions, and where religious rights are protected under law, but religious primacy is not seen uh, in the same way that it is now, which, which puts Israel in a very... Uh, tough position with regard to, to democracy. I don't think it can remain both Jewish and democratic.
0: Mm-hmm. So a democracy where uh, Arabs and Jews would live together as mm-hmm. Israeli citizens in a right. Israeli democracy. Yeah,
1: and there's various ideas. It could be a confederacy. There's, there's, there are different movements that are trying mm-hmm. to imagine or to think outside of the box and trying to imagine a future uh, where there are rights to everybody who lives in the area between the Jordan River and
0: the mm. Mediterranean Sea, encompass what we call the West Bank. The West Bank and and, yeah. and but
1: yeah. okay,
0: confederal structure. That sounds sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll hope for your vision, Ruth, yes. Yes. and uh, and and something that <clears throat> might truly bring uh, peace to the, the Middle East. So many thanks to uh, uh, Dr. Benardsi for her insights into Israeli politics. Thanks also to Beyond the News Feed's production assistant and engineer, Reagan Wind, of the Providence College Class of 2020. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, and his staff for their support of this podcast. Most of all, we thank you, our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed wherever they get their podcasts. And stay tuned for a future Uh, episode uh, in the coming months. Thanks.